Hey guys, and welcome to episode 51 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. As per usual, you're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack. And before we get started with another Q&A, I just wanted to mention that if you enjoy the episode, please remember to leave a rating and repost it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. You can also find information about our coaching services through our website, which is linked in all of our Instagram bios, or just search www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. You can also find us on our new YouTube channel, which is a more personal approach towards our training and nutrition, if you're interested in that. And you can find that just by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on YouTube. Awesome. All right. And before we begin, I also just wanted to let everyone know, especially following on from our previous interview with Alan that we did last week, the team over at Flex Success has actually just released a brand new ebook called Life After Dieting. And honestly, after reading this book, I could not recommend it enough because, you know, there's so many books out there that teach you how to diet, but There's not a lot of resources out there that actually teach you about, you know, the post diet approach and how to recover from that and how to pretty much tackle that. So uh, this ebook that the team at Flex Success has put together is just remarkable. You know, it really teaches you how to become an informed eater and how to have a healthy relationship with food and your body. And it pretty much teaches you how to maintain your new body weight after a period of dieting, but you don't have to keep going along with you know the restrictions of meticulously tracking macros and being super strict with your food intake and you know sometimes socially isolating yourself because you're afraid to attend social events because of the types of food there so it really teaches you to have a healthy relationship with food and your body and your mind and really enjoy life in moderation while still maintaining your new body composition after a period of dieting. And, you know, I know certainly that I went through a really bad period of an eating disorder about five and a half years ago. And if I would have had access to a resource or a book like this, Gosh, it would have helped me so much overcome that. It honestly probably would have saved me a few years of struggle. So uh, I could not recommend this book enough, Life After Dieting. It's not quite released yet, but the pre-sales are available right now. And with our code TBD20, you can get 20% off the price. So the book, I believe at full price is only $29.95. So you can get 20% off with that with our code. And I'll put that all in the links below for the description. But uh, yeah, honestly, the book that they've put together, it's just phenomenal. All the different concepts they've covered, it's, uh, it's really, really going to help a lot of people out there. So can't wait for you guys to read it. All right, so we'll get straight into the episode now. So first, before we cover a uh, quite a few question and answers, we're going to give you guys a little bit of a wrap up on our past two weeks because we realize we haven't really given you an update for a while. So I've just been powering along with my own training and nutrition, which is going great other than my tricep tendonitis. Unfortunately, I still can't do any pushing movements, but yeah, it's a fairly slow process as far as I'm aware to 
heal a tendonitis issue, especially since it was, it's been here for quite a few months now, but yeah, I'm just doing my physio related exercises for that and trying to find that balance between working it too much and not really working the tendon at all. So yeah, wish me luck with that. In other news, as I mentioned at the start, we have our own YouTube channel now, and I've actually uploaded my first video, which is my full day of eating. And I have another one on the way, probably being uploaded in the next one to two days, which is basically my road to competing in 2021 season B. So that's gonna be the start, the first video of the start of a series in which I'll basically document my off season until I compete, which I think will be very interesting and exciting. And in probably even more exciting news for us, our puppy will be born hopefully this week on Friday. So we both can't (laughs) wait for that. And yeah, and I'll also mention because he definitely deserves a shout out to my client, Joseph, who's competing in the Natural Olympia uh, this week. So we've been working towards that for a long time now. Joseph's been doing season A and season B because that's just how PNBA works. And yeah, very excited to see him up on that stage. Yeah, Joseph is looking freaking incredible. I cannot wait to see him carved up up there tanned. He's going to look amazing because already, you know, on his low carb days, you know, and uh, he's not pale. He lives in Florida, but uh, he already freaking looks like he could be on the stage with his conditioning right now. So, man, I'm so excited for him. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a great end to a long season for him. Yeah, woohoo! Yeah, but I'm pretty much the same. You know, these last two weeks have uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Pretty much just work, training, you know, prep. Everything's really, really swell in life right now. And just in regards to my prep, I think last time I gave an update, which was two weeks ago now, my body weight was 64.7, and now it is down to 63.9. So, I'm finding that my body, you know, I've now moved into this new phase of doing five low days and two high days. My body is responding really, really well to that. So uh, yeah, basically because I'm losing around 400 grams per week on a weekly average, which is pretty much smack bang in the middle for me between 0.5 to 1% of my body weight loss per week. You know, I'm just, I'm really, really happy with uh, how things are moving and yeah, it's exciting. So there's no reason to really make any adjustments to the plan right now in terms of nutrition. So um, on my low days, I'm still on 200 carb, 35 fat, 140 protein. And then on my high days, I bring that up to 325 carb and then keep fats and protein the same at 35 grams fat, 140 grams of protein. And uh Yeah, I'm feeling really, really good. And as of today, I am just under 16 weeks out. So I'm about 110 days out from my first show. And kind of crazy, one of my friends and one of Jack's clients messaged me last week, who's he's also competing with the IFBB at the same shows. And he's like, oh gosh, we got the dates wrong. And, you know, originally it was planned that our first, the Queensland qualifiers for IFBB was going to be on the 22nd of February, but they actually moved it to a week later. So now it's on the 29th of February. So it was kind of weird because I woke up, you know, like last week and I was like, all right, sweet, 16 weeks out. And then I got that message and I'm like, all right, I'm 17 weeks out again. So, uh, an extra week, can't complain. And, um, 
Jack and I have had a few jokes about maybe that means an extra diet break, who knows? But uh, I think it's actually really good, to be honest, because now there's only a three-week gap between the qualifiers and the Arnolds. Previously, it was four weeks. And I think, you know, four weeks is quite a long time. A hell of a lot can happen in the space of a month. So I'm actually really happy that they're now closer to each other. But other than that, you know, life is freaking good right now. So I'm just keep trotting along. All right, so we're gonna get straight into these questions today. We have heaps of good ones. Thank you for everyone who sent them through. So this first one was asked by Sophia, and she's basically asking, are macros or micros more important? So this is an interesting one, and for me it depends on the sort of criteria you're looking at macros and micros in, or the lens, and automatically, like when Tierra and I were discussing this, we both thought of the exact same thing at the same time, which is basically you're going to die from not consuming enough food before you are from being in a deficit of micronutrients. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that was the first thing that came to our head, like survival. But, you know, when I get asked questions like this, first, I just think it's kind of silly, guys, because, you know, both are so important and there's no reason to place them on a hierarchy, you know, and say that, oh, macros are more important than micros or no, micros are more important than macros. Like you need both to thrive. So stop fighting. <laughs> it's honestly, it's so silly. But uh, yes, technically you will die if you don't consume enough calories before you die from a micronutrient deficiency. Yeah, and especially if you're, are we looking at macros like macro distribution or total calories? Like, yeah, there's there's so many different ways we could look at it or view it. But yeah, I completely agree with Tierra in the sense that they're equally important. You need a certain amount of energy to survive and thrive and for your body to function appropriately. But you, the same can also be said for micros as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think this argument actually, you know, stems from the two camps of like IFFYM, so if it fits your macros, versus, you know, people who are all wholesome, organic, you know, natural, unprocessed. So there's these two different camps, but guys, what you'll find is that they both just need to mesh together in order for you to have, you know, the healthiest and most sustainable diet. So a lot of people, you know, are under the impression that if you follow an IFFYM approach that you just fill your diet basically with as much junk as you can, as long as you, you know, hit your protein, carbs, fats, and fiber targets. But that's not true. You know, it's not true at all. A lot of these people, you know, who follow an IFFYM approach, they do it so that they don't have to follow some sort of strict meal plan so that they can have more variety in their diet, you know? But I can see where it comes from because, you know, someone who's very tuned in with this, you know, and they're eating all their fruits and vegetables and their oatmeal, you know, all of their wholesome foods, right? But let's say that, uh, let's say that on their oatmeal, they put a small square of chocolate on it in the morning because they just really enjoyed that. 
And then one of their family members looked at them and they're like, how are you eating chocolate? You know, like that's so unhealthy. That's so nutrient poor. And then you bring up the argument like, yeah, but you know, it fits my total daily energy intake. So it's not going to negatively impact my body composition. But you know, other people are under the impression that, oh no, it's not about, you know, total energy intake. It's purely about the nutrients that you consume. So, you know, it's a lot healthier to consume, you know, paleo granola bars that are filled with nuts and dark chocolate and dried fruit and all of this stuff compared to, you know, a normal Uncle Toby's chocolate bar or something. Even though the Uncle Toby's chocolate bar is probably the third of the energy density. And if you're looking at body composition at a whole, obviously you're going to have a more positive body composition if you are staying within your total energy requirements. Yeah, it's sort of like comparing nutrition to exercise. They're both very important factors that we require, but they're also at the same time not really comparable in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Like you need both. Or imagine a car, right? And someone asks you the question, which one's more important, the accelerator or the brake? You know, like you could look at it and be like, well, technically the accelerator, you know, if you don't put your foot down on the accelerator, you're going to defeat the purpose of the car because you're not going to be able to drive anywhere. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that the brake is super important too. So, um, yeah, I guess bottom line, guys, like <laughs> both are both are important. It's not one or the other. So the next question is by Emma and she asks, does protein powder denature at a certain temperature? For example, when you put protein powder in a super hot bowl of oats. This is such a good question. We've actually been asked this quite a few times. Yeah, so the short answer is no. Protein powder won't denature at that sort of temperature. Like, then again, there's the opposite end of the spectrum, or should I say, like, the soup vamped up end of the spectrum where you burn it so it's crispy on the bottom of a pan and that's kind of like a different story <laughs> yeah exactly but uh i think you know when we think about protein guys and anyone who's studied biochemistry they know that protein has four different structures so you have the primary structure of protein which is the chain of singular amino acids and then you have the secondary structure where there's like a hydrogen bond and it forms this backbone there's a tertiary structure and a quaternary structure so essentially when you denature protein it changes the different quaternary I always have difficulty pronouncing that word, the tertiary and the secondary structure so that it does change in structure and shape. And that makes sense because, you know, as anyone would know, when, we, when you cook protein powder in oats, you know, and you stir it around, it becomes kind of clumpy. So yeah, the structure is definitely changed, but the primary structure is still there, which is that chain of singular amino acids. And nutritionally, that's the most important thing because that's all your body needs. It just needs those amino acids because if you were to consume the protein by itself, you know, with just water, it would, your body would have done that same thing anyway. It would have broken that protein down into those singular amino acids. So it's all good. It's still the exact same nutritionally. It's the exact same as cooking an egg, you know? So when you cook an egg, obviously the structures of the protein change so that the egg white, it turns white. Uh, or what would you call an egg white that's not white? It's the egg, 
The, egg translucent. The, yes, the egg translucent. <laughs> Once the egg translucent is cooked, it turns white, okay? And that's denaturing the protein technically. But as we know, eggs have like the highest biological value of protein of any food on the planet. So you still get those amino acids. So nutritionally, it's the exact same. Yeah, we also have to remember that the stomach contains hydrochloric acid, which has like a pH of, I don't know, between one and three, is mm. it? Yeah, so that'll basically do the same job or like even more stronger than cooking your food in a bowl of oats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your pro oats. It's all good. <laughs> all right, so this next question was asked by Lawrence, and he says, when you guys started uni, was coaching always the goal to pursue? Yeah, this is a deep question, but <laughs> the I think the short answer is no. And I was very sort of undecided in what I was going to do. Like, I definitely wanted to pursue something in nutrition. That was sort of the goal. Like, Tia and I both worked very hard in school to get a good grade, but then we ended up choosing something that didn't really require a good OP, which is quite interesting, but that's just how it goes. Like at least I still believe that it's important to try hard in high school to develop habits for uni anyway. But yeah, the answer is that I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do. I don't think I had enough knowledge at that stage to sort of formulate what my career would be, but I was certainly like passionate about nutrition and training as well not i hadn't really got into the bodybuilding mindset then but i was definitely on the way yeah i'm the exact same you know as a 17 year old going into uni i had no flipping idea what to expect so uh i guess that's why a lot of people go to uni you know so that because they're interested in a particular topic but they also want to learn about what can i do with this information you know what are the different career avenues out there and like before I discovered, you know, my passion for bodybuilding, which was probably at the end of first year and like beginning of second year, you know, I had so many mixed ideas about what I wanted to do, but uh, I've certainly always been super interested in fueling for performance, you know, in sports nutrition. So I always saw myself working with athletes of some type, but at that point I just didn't know, but I guess, as the years went on, you know, and Jack and I really, really started to understand our love and our passions for this. And, you know, we started to see that other influencers out there, you know, and other coaches, this can actually be a career. Like, I think that's when we start to think more and more and plan ahead and say like, all right, how can we actually create our dream jobs? And I guess, you know, over the years, it just built upon that. And then here we are, we're bodybuilding dietitians. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how things change in such short periods of time. Yeah, amazing. It's, uh, it's absolutely flown by. I just can't believe it. Okay, so this next question was asked by Jason, and it says, recommendations for food slash supplements to combat inflammation. So yeah, this is a question quite close to me because... I have done some research on anti-inflammatory, whether it coming, be coming from the diet or from supplements. And the first thing I wanted to touch on is that an anti-inflammatory diet is very good. It's also important as well in terms of staying healthy. And this is different to having an anti-inflammatory approach when it comes to supplements. 
So essentially an anti-inflammatory diet will basically be wholesome foods. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains. And this is because they contain antioxidants and of course other components as well, which are very important to stay healthy. And the reason why supplements aren't always the best because they do provide very, very high doses of certain anti-inflammatory properties, whether it be exogenous uh, antioxidants like vitamin C. And in terms of like a training aspect now, a lot of the adaptations we create are due to inflammation because we have to adapt to the inflammatory response. And if you keep on throwing exogenous supplements or properties such as vitamin C or vitamin E at at that inflammation sure it probably will be slightly effective in reducing that inflammation but that is a very very normal process that your body overcomes in order to adapt and let's say get stronger grow new muscle tissue etc so yeah basically we would only recommend uh having a anti-inflammatory diet because let's be honest you're not going to be getting like a very 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 high dose of anti-inflammatory properties from diet alone. It's gonna be supplements such as, I don't know, like there's not much evidence for things like curcumin or... Yeah, exactly. Things like curcumin, which come from turmeric, you know, or like things like resveratrol, which come from purple grapes. But yeah, really just get things from the diet, guys. Like if you were to eat your average piece of fruit, like an orange, that's probably gonna have somewhere between 60 to 100 milligrams of vitamin C, or you could consume a 500 milligram or 1000 milligram vitamin C tablet, which would be equivalent to upwards of 10 pieces of fruit, right? Which is just crazy. So you don't need to do that because consuming exogenous supplements like that, it challenges hormesis. So it challenges that sweet spot that our body likes to stay at. And gosh, if you consume exogenous antioxidants through supplements, you can actually shut down your endogenous antioxidant production. So the body, surprisingly enough, it actually produces antioxidants itself, like superoxide dismutase, uh, glutathione, all these different ones. And yeah, so pretty much get your food from the diet. Don't get it from pills and you will be all sweet. But uh, Jack, there are some very special circumstances where you might need to take anti-inflammatory medication, right? Yeah, so common ones of this might be, for example, having a gut disorder such as Crohn's disease where you basically have inflammation of the gut where you need steroid medication. Even things like skin issues such as I can't pronounce this, but it's like eczema or something like that. Oh, eczema? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) But basically where you have like the red rash on you, you'll need steroid medication to reduce the inflammation for that. And when you, after you get an injury, um, so ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory, which is effective in reducing inflammation. Like for example, when I dropped a couch in my toe, I used uh, Nurofen for that, which very effectively reduced inflammation. So definitely using it when you need to, but personally, I don't see the use of taking a bunch of other anti-inflammatory supplements when your diet and your body can do it perfectly well. Yeah, exactly. You're just going to cause way more harm than good 
when in the first place, you know, you're... I think Tiara goes a little bit over the okay, top. You're when not, she says okay, that. vitamin C is <laughs> not gonna kill you, but it's not necessarily gonna make you super duper healthy and muscular either. So it's just what I'm trying to say is it's not necessary for your long term health. Also, you know, for the health of I your also, wallet and your bank account, you know, it's just, it's not necessary. And I've never heard of anyone shutting down their endogenous <laughs> antioxidant system. Well, we'll have to talk to your mom. You know, Jack's mom is a hepatologist. And often when, you know, people do chronically take these super high antioxidant supplements and greens powders and green tea x50 there definitely has been reports of people having toxic liver failure which is really scary yeah i do agree with that yeah all right guys so uh eat your veggies <laughs> all right we'll move on to another question now okay so this one was asked by holly and it says nutrition labels list fats and saturated fats is the difference mono and polyunsaturated jack Take the floor and explain. <laughs> so I'll start off this answer by explaining that there are two different groupings for fatty acids. So there's essential and non-essential fatty acids. The essential fatty acids being your polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are omega-3 and omega-6. Omega-3 coming from your fish and those sorts of products as well, like chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts. And when I say essential, that basically means that your body can't produce enough of these to be sufficient or it doesn't produce them at all. So the other grouping is non-essential fatty acids, which essentially means that your body produces enough of these ones yourself, but you can still get them through the diet. The main one being monounsaturated fatty acids, which uh, comes in products such as olive oil, nuts as well. And this will be your, let's say your grains have a trace amount of uh, fat, then that'll most likely be monounsaturated fats. The other remaining two main ones are going to be saturated fat and trans fats. And trans fats are produced uh, through processing. They're not necessarily produced in large amounts at all naturally. So these will be things, actually in Australia, if you're an Australian listener, the, the food regulation actually kind of enforces trans fats quite harshly. So in Australia, it's very unlikely that you're going to be getting a lot of trans fats, whereas in the US, they don't regulate it quite so much. Yeah, so trans fats are essentially when they try to hydrogenate an unsaturated fat. So Margarine would be a great example for this. So margarine, usually the fats that they create margarine from are margarine, 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 margarine. <laughs> that sounds like some old woman's name, <laughs> margarine. She's uh, hydrogenated. Uh, no, but anyway, margarine is created from unsaturated fats, right? But they need to add hydrogen and hydrogenate it so that it turns from a liquid into a solid so that it replicates butter because the main structural difference between unsaturated and saturated fats is that at room temperature, an unsaturated fat is going to be liquid. So for example, olive oil, whereas a saturated fat is going to remain solid. So something like a block of butter, right? But yeah, so they need to add hydrogen to unsaturated fats like margarine so that it's solid and so you can spread it. But because, and this creates trans fats, but because these aren't natural in nature, 
our body doesn't really know how to process them. So uh, it can lead to a lot of cardiovascular complications if you consume them in excess, like arteriosclerosis and, you know, a bunch of like plaque built up in your arteries and stuff. Yeah. So that's a very good description by Tierra. And the last one is also saturated fat, which gets quite a bad rap as well. And historically, like when I say historically, I mean like maybe in the last like 20 years, saturated fat has got, there was quite a lot of circumstantial evidence. I think that's the best way to describe it, that saturated fat was bad for cardiovascular health. And the main reason was because they did a longitudinal case study, which basically basically examined the diets and cardiovascular disease of a group of people over a long time. And they found that those people that had a high saturated fat intake in their diet were more likely to get cardiovascular disease. However, the one problem with those sorts of studies is that they don't examine other facets. Like, for example, if someone is getting a lot of saturated fats, it probably means they are consuming quite a lot of animal fat or processed foods or going to McDonald's and getting the nice juicy beef burger and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's called the lifestyle cluster effect. So essentially, you know, people with certain lifestyle habits tend to have other certain lifestyle habits. And in epidemiological studies, this really makes it so mixed and it's hard to pinpoint one exact thing and say, the cause of all these health issues is the saturated fat. When it's like, hey, but you know, these people also don't consume enough fruits and vegetables. They have sedentary lifestyles. They drink a lot of alcohol. Some of them smoke, you know, they're overweight. You know, all of these different things, these lifestyle cluster effects. So it can't just be the saturated fat. And actually pretty interestingly, the Australian Heart Foundation recently released new nutrition guidelines and they've actually got on there that there's no longer significant evidence to say that we should avoid full fat dairy. So now they're actually recommending that, you know, people consume, obviously a full fat dairy still in moderation. You don't just want to be like drinking three liters of milk a day or something because you won't get anything else in. But uh, there's no restrictions on the servings of full fat dairy that you can consume because now there's literature to show that people who actually consume full fat dairy that they actually have you know healthier body weights and they have they have less risk of chronic health conditions because i think in that case you know if you consume a little bit more fat in a meal you're going to be more satiated in the long term and again if we look at total energy balance if you're more satiated you're going to eat less food overall you're going to be able to maintain a healthy body composition and a healthy weight you know regardless if you consumed three extra grams of saturated fat from your full cream milk like in the long term that might actually be better so yeah that's just an interesting point but yeah, Jack, let's answer, answer this question. We've digressed so many times. <laughs> okay, so the question was quickly again, nutrition labels list fats and saturated fats. Is the difference mono and polyunsaturated? So essentially the total fat fats entry will be all your different fat types, essential, non-essential. So that'll include monounsaturated, uh, poly, trans, and saturated. And then the saturated entry below that will just be how much of that total fat is saturated fat. So it's really quite simple. And 
The reason why they do that is because, as we said previously, they want to basically recognize on nutritional labels how much saturated fat something has because it has got a bad sort of wrap in recent times. Yeah, exactly. So basically, you're just going to have your total fats, saturated fats, and when you subtract the saturated fats from the total, whatever is remaining, that's just going to be a mixture of poly and monounsaturated fats. So yeah, and then some nutrition labels do get fancy and they will tell you, you know, the breakdown of monounsaturated and then omega-3s and then omega-6s, but certainly not all do that. Okay, so this next question was asked by Daniel Abella, and he says, looking back, would you have competed while studying again, or would you have waited until you finished uni? Yeah, this is a good question, and I think I would definitely compete again, because I don't think that uni really did influence my sort of ability to compete at all. If anything, it was the other way around, like... I think me recognizing having a better starting point uh, for competing would have been more optimal. And that doesn't really come down to university at all. Like, I think I can speak for both of us in that we sort of optimized everything regardless of being in university or not. Like we, we sort of university and training nutrition, those were our two major focal points and we were able to do everything well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Jack and I, we already lived that lifestyle of training and studying for so many years prior because, you know, we competed in the first year of our master's degree, which was our fourth year of university. But in all of the years before that, you know, we were still training five to six times a week, you know, and we were studying a full time bachelor degree at the same time. You know, we were still tracking all of our nutrition. We were still getting good quality sleep. You know, we were still working. We were still basically doing everything that a comp prep required. But honestly, the two major changes that occurred during comp prep were we were eating less food, which in my case, that actually saved me a lot of time. You know, eating less calories, I had to prep less food, which means I had to make less bowls of oats, which saved me a lot of time. And the other thing was, you know, just posing practice a few times a week, which really didn't add on that much time. So because we were already accustomed to that lifestyle, you know, we were able to transition from that into a competition prep very, very easily because we were already so used to it, you know, and, you know, we were already used to during exam periods, we never made excuses for why we couldn't train. If anything, training was the best part of exam periods because it was such a great mental break. So yeah, I, um, I certainly would have still competed again while I studied because I, yeah, I don't think that it negatively influenced either one. You know, we, uh, we were fully able to do it. Yeah, I completely agree. We really didn't have to change that much to our lifestyle. We just got a little bit hungrier. We got a little bit smaller (laughs) and we posed a little bit more as well. (laughs) Yeah, but um, no, it was it was a great journey and I would definitely do it again. But yeah, I would say that for anyone looking to compete in the future, you know, and if you are in that same situation where you are studying, definitely have a trial run, you know, (laughs) Uh, still live the lifestyle for a good year or two before you decide to add a competition prep on top of it, just so that you, you know, in your heart that you are fully committed to this and that your time management skills are very good and you can basically handle it. 
All right, so move on to another one. This one was asked by Amy and it says, tips on how to get a good night's sleep in comp prep. Oh, how that can make a world of difference. <laughs> yeah, so I think to be honest, it more comes down to sleep hygiene as a factor. And sleep hygiene is basically the habits you form around sleeping time. So of course, leading up to sleep and that'll help improve how well you sleep throughout the night and also the sleep onset latency, which is how long it takes for you to fall asleep. So yeah, so some of the major ones that Chair and I both practice is something very important to me is making sure that I'm in a cool environment and not overly hot or overly cold and leading up to sleeping, also be in a relaxed state. So you don't want to, I don't know, go for a run or train directly before you sleep because your adrenaline will be spiked and your sympathetic nervous system will be as well. You want to set a routine that you follow each night so that your body get used to falling asleep. So you don't want to, let's say one night, um, watch TV the other night, you'll do something else. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and another factor is blue light blockers, the glasses that people often wear before they sleep and they essentially block out blue light. And the reason why that people wear these is that blue light basically inhibits the release of melatonin, which essentially is the hormone that tells your body that it's time to get tired. Yeah. And blue light, you know, it comes from our phones. It comes from our computers. It comes from our TVs. So uh, it's really, really important to try to limit things at night. So if you can, you know, set yourself a specific time where you turn off things like TVs, your phones, uh, your computers, like at least an hour before bed and you just totally chill out. So you might read a book, you know, and also make your environment dark and cool. So start to dim the lights or turn the lights off, you know, and just purely relax. Uh, that can certainly help too. But um, at the same time, if, if you can't necessarily turn those things off, a lot of electronics do have a setting on them called warm. So you can turn that on, which kind of emits the screen to turn a little bit orange itself, which can be really helpful too. But something in particular Jack and I have found super duper beneficial for our quality of sleep and, you know, reducing that sleep onset latency is actually separating our bed from what we do at night. So, you know, Jack and I like to wind down at night and chill out, you know, and watch a few episodes of a TV show on Netflix. And we actually used to do that in bed. So where we lived previously, we had a big TV in the room and we would watch Netflix at night for a few hours, and then we would fall asleep straight afterwards. And Personally speaking, I know that I would take like sometimes 45 minutes to fall asleep because I had been in that bed for so long. But now what we do is we actually watch TV out in the living room. And then once we get tired, you know, we turn off the TV and we go into the bedroom and we fall asleep. And I've like, I swear to God, now I just hit the pillow and I'm knocked out, man. And it has made a world of difference to my sleep quality over these last few months, which has just been seriously amazing. So basically, you know, it's kind of like that old saying, 
basically just use your bed for sleep and sex. Like don't associate it with anything else because then your body will fall into that rhythm of, hey, my bed is just for when I want to go to bed, you know? It's, uh, it's not for anything else. It's not for chilling out during the day. Just completely keep it separate for that. Yeah, the final aspect to consider is also supplements. And I think supplements really come in handy only when you're deficient in the vitamin, mineral, whatever you're supplementing. So a big one is obviously melatonin. If you are deficient in melatonin, then supplementing with it will certainly help. Same with other uh, vitamins and minerals that are important for sleep, such as zinc and magnesium as well. Yeah, and you know, funny that we say that because at the very beginning of this year, Jack and I actually used to supplement with magnesium prior to bed. And you know, we actually did promote it and you know, we thought that we were getting a better quality night's sleep. And then I actually transitioned into using a ZMA tablet from VPA, which was a mixture of zinc, magnesium, and vitamin B6. And I was taking that for a while, but Honestly, we're not deficient in any of those nutrients. We actually get all of those nutrients adequately from our diets. So we actually like supplemented off of them. And personally, I found that my sleep quality actually improved from not taking those things. So it really shows that, you know, you can trial and error these different things, but supplements certainly aren't mandatory. Obviously, things like melatonin might really help someone if they're jet lagged or, you know, a shift worker or something like that. But it really, really is that quality of sleep. And also, uh, Greg and Eric on the Stronger by Science podcast made a really good point that one of the number one ways to actually fall asleep earlier is to go to bed earlier. So that's pretty simple. Really? Yeah, literally, if you want to fall asleep earlier, you know, get in bed earlier, turn off the lights and try to fall asleep earlier. That's what really, really helps. Uh, I can say anecdotally that wouldn't work for me because like if I'm not tired when I get in bed, then I'll just stay awake thinking. Yeah, well, just try. (laughs) Anyway, that'll probably be it for today, guys. And as per usual, we'll finish off by saying something that we learned each week. And I'll let Tierra go first. Ooh, okay. So this week I started watching this new documentary on Netflix called Explain. It's super duper cool. It's actually narrated by Emma Stone. And I was watching this one episode on dreams uh, and, you know, why we dream. Um, They have this entire series talking about the mind. It's so cool. Anyway, there's the different, you know, stages of sleep. So you have, you know, deep sleep, REM sleep, light sleep, all these different things. But during REM sleep, that's rapid eye movement sleep, that's actually when we're dreaming. And that's when our brain is super duper active and it's trying to process all of this information. But what's really cool is that during REM sleep, that's actually when memories are consolidated. So that's when we take that information, you know, and we save it for later. So for example, imagine you are in the middle of exam period and you've been studying all night, you fall asleep at night and your brain during REM sleep helps you consolidate that information so you know it and you can recall it the next day. But at the same time, while you're actually storing information, you're actually getting rid of a whole bunch of information and a whole bunch of just junk that is literally in your head. And 
I thought that was so cool because uh, you know how, you know, usually when you've had a rough day or something and people say, you know, just sleep on it, you'll feel better in the morning. And usually you do. It's because at night, you know, your brain is getting rid of all this random junk, this random information that you just don't need. And sometimes things that are just making you feel like crap and also memories that you may have, it purposely gets rid of small fragments of them so that, you know, you don't have to remember those and you don't have to dwell on them the next day. And you can really be a happier person. So imagine like, if you went through a traumatic breakup, right? As the nights go on and you keep sleeping, your brain will purposely forget small fragments of that memory so that over time, you're gonna feel better, you know? And you won't remember it as in much detail as when it actually happens. So yeah, I thought that was really cool. All right, Jack, what did you learn? So if many of you guys will know, I have been suffering from this tendonitis issue for a couple of months now. And one thing that I have learned is that you really can't keep the tendon completely still and you can't overstimulate it either because you'll just make the symptoms worse. So you really have to find that middle ground of still strengthening the tendon and also let, leaving it be as well so it doesn't cause further inflammation. So I'm just trying to find that balance at the moment that perfect balance that will hopefully have you on a speedy road to recovery. All right, guys, so that will be the end of our 51st episode. Thank you so much again for tuning in. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you in the next episode. See you guys. Bye.